0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 133, and Piet Retief and Dingane have started their final dance with death. It's a hot day in northern Zululand in the Folozi River Valley, where Dingane's capital, Mgungundlovu, was situated. When Petr first met the Zulu king, he failed to grasp the extent to which this man's authority was based on what historian John Labant calls a combination of mystical ritual and naked power politics. That Dingana was a despot is clear, but what was less understood was that his people allowed him to be so, that he could only make major decisions about political strategy with the input of important men, sometimes women, of the kingdom. The small inner sanctum of power... The Amkantlu was a council that included the Abantwana, the princes of the royal house. Alongside these aristocrats were the Izinduna, state officials that were appointed as commanders of the Amabuta regiments. Some ruled over entire districts and administered justice in the king's name. Anyone was free to become an Induna, unlike the Umkantlu, but only after members of the aristocracy were unavailable to take up that position. Because these Zinduna were appointed, they had more to lose, and did the king's will more amenably. Even so, one of these Induna was going to balk when Dingan ordered him to kill Petratif and his small party of men that had been negotiating land in the first week of November 1837. More about that at the end of this episode. Dingaan's main Induna was in Lela Ka Sumpiti. his other was in Zobo Ka Sobadli, and both of these Induna were of royal blood, linked to the royal house. Oddly enough, the physical proof of their position was the permission to grow long fingernails. Men of high status grew their nails, particularly thumbnails, longer than an inch and a half, as a sign that they did not have to do manual labour. They were freed from having to hold hoes or wield implements. They also wore another symbol of power, the ink orta, a massive and heavy brass armlet that reached from elbow to wrist and looked a bit like an ancient Greek arm shield. They favoured cloaks of dark blue cotton Salmpo cloth that had been imported from Delago Bay and wore the skirts made of blue monkey skins sewn with twisted thongs of blue monkey and gannet and mongoose skins, and a single upright plume of a blue crane feather worn above the forehead, a distinctive emblem of the elevated position. When Petritif arrived at mgungu on the evening of 5th of November 1837, he would not have noticed these emblems immediately. The Zulu men were essentially semi-naked. Only the ornaments, arm bracelets, beads, brass, worn below the knee and around ankles, bands of beads slung over the shoulder, indicated power. He had to look closely to be certain. I mention all of this because we're heading towards a war, and Dingana and his Nkantlu had conferred throughout this period about their policy regarding the Boers. Some Nkantlu had made up their minds long before Dingana was biding his time. That the Boers were his enemy, he had already decided, and this was before he had even heard about Mzilikazi Kamalu's final fate. Once he heard that his arch-enemy, a former resident of northern Zululand, had been sent packing by the Boers, his Amandabili crushed. There was nothing but conflict that awaited these two implacable forces about to crunch into each other in Zululand. But Dingano would only discover this in the new year of 1838. Right now, all he knew is that Mzilikazi's homestead of Masecha had been destroyed, not that the man of the Kamalo clan had been forced to flee. Dingano thought that a man of the Zululand's fighting ethos would bounce back, perhaps even deflect the Boers from his Mariko sanctuary of Igabeni. There's much to say before, so let's hear about the fascinating march towards the inevitable. It's always in matters of death that rituals are well defined. When his people gathered, or the Indunas and their warriors gathered, the king would sit in front of his Izinkaku, his main advisers, and the Izinkulu, the Izinduna, arranged before him, sitting around 15 meters away. Dingana would quietly talk to Indelera, the commander-in-chief, who would then turn around and shout loudly to the gathered izinduna sitting in the front of the umkumbi, their sections, who would repeat the message or command to the men behind them. Because it was loud, there was no broken telephone problem. The Indunas repeated the orders to the word. After each order or comment had been passed, Lela would shout, do you hear the king? And the warriors would reply, Yes, father. When Dingana found something mirthful and laughed with his peculiar closed-mouth laugh, embarrassed about his little rotting teeth, the men would laugh subserviently when he stood up. The warriors would shout, "Bayedi!" the king, and stand, then stoop, bending from the hip as he passed by. When accused of a crime, all offenders would be made to sit on the ground in a semicircle facing the king while the Qaeku shaded him with a shield. Miscreants would either be killed or fined. To the right of the main entrance at Mkungutlovu was a valley that dipped away with gentle slopes and this was the place known as Kwangata, the place of execution. The lowest reaches of the valley were beyond sight, shielding people from the final moments. Victims would be struck once on the head with a knobkerry, and the force meant usually instant death. Sometimes they'd have their necks broken. Women and men of status could be throttled to death with a noose instead. Their bodies would be dragged across the Umkumbani stream and left on the Kwa Matawani, the steep stony hill about half a kilometre north northeast of the main gate of Mkunguglovu. It was a sinister place. The smell of death hung about it, named after Matawani Kamsumpa of the Nguani, as you remember. However, when many people were to die, the king preferred them to die more visibly on the Kwa Matawani itself, as Kwa Nkata was a bit more secluded. The killings were to work as a message. This had happened in 1834, when Dingane had been told that commoners who had come to visit were stealing into his Izugodlo at night and sleeping with the women. Enraged, he had ordered his regiments, the Badlu, the Imkuluchani, the Izinyosi, to round these men up, march them off to Kwamatawani, and over two days killed dozens as a warning. Had they indeed been sleeping with the maidens, we are not entirely sure. Their bodies were left for the hyenas, the jackals, and the vultures. And now, two men who you've heard about were going to be central in the upcoming killing spree pitting Zulu against Boer, In Zobo Kasobatli, who we know more commonly as Dambuza, and in Lela Kasumpisi. In Zobo was overweight, ill tempered, always walking about with a pale blanket thrown around his portly frame. When Dingana wanted to compromise, or even consider mercy, it was in Zorbu, who often strengthened the king's resolve, insisting that the killing of people is a proper practice, for if no killing is done, there will be no fear. Inlela was of the same opinion, apparently, although he was a contradiction, and thought of, more warmly, in the oral history storytelling. Inlela was also the brother of Bibi the Beautiful, Senzang favorite wife. He'd been prominent during Shaka's reign, a warrior of note. Also a man who had the gift of the gab and an orator in his own right. Tall, dark-skinned, with a slight beard and a protruding belly, a sign of wealth amongst the slightly older. He was technically in Zorbu's senior and a superior because inlela was chief counsellor and commander-in-chief. The missionaries like Owen, now living alongside Mgungudlovu, had heard it was these two who ordered executions and knocked Dingaan, as the prose poem The Zimbongo goes, Imbuzi ka Dambuza benutlela abayimbambe ingantlebe yabakazela. Goat of Dambuza and inlela, which they held by the ear, and it was patient. By goat, of course, they meant Dingon and Dingaan was also ox that encircles homesteads with tears. Mamba who, when he was down, he was up. A dangerous, cunning and brutal king who was about to live up to his name. It was the 6th of November, 1837, the day after they arrived at Umgungulovu, that Piet Retief and his small party were ushered before Dingaan as he sat in his large chair flanked by the Izinduna and his courtiers, the Umkangu. Eyeing the boers was Dingaan's favorite dog, Maquedlan, lying alongside the king's chair, paws outstretched, tongue lolling, a fatso of a hound, and treated better than most of the king's subjects. Dingaan had dressed up for this meeting and was wearing a splendid robe with red, white, and black stripes, which he held over his face like a veil. By doing so, he could observe the boers without them observing him. Ratif never described in his letters what the Zulu king looked like. Still, what would have struck the Boer leader was his eyes, when eventually the king dropped the robe from his face and broke the tense silence after a minute with, Sakoborna, I see you. It was Dingana's eyes that saw you, that remained long in the memory for most who visited him, revealing a fierce glance that was apprehensive, volatile, quick, Engaged, observing, nothing escaped these eyes, said trader Nathaniel Isaacs. More than once he'd been quelled by what he called the piercing and penetrating eyes of Dingaan. that rolled when he was angry. Dingaan knew that he faced dangerous men. The Boers were imhanga, deadly, and they wanted his kingdom, or at least a large portion. Furthermore, they were discourteous, for they had arrived bearing no gifts. They just showed up with demands. How dare they, he must have thought. That didn't look good. It made Dingaan appear unimportant in front of his people. Even the British had sent gifts. So too the missionaries, despite being obviously poor, and yet... Here were these lords of the felt, these men who defeated people like the Amakosa with their grand trousers and their jackets, their hats, their guns, their horses, their wagons. The boers who'd shot entire herds of elephant and sold their tusks and they bought him nothing. The Zulu king set about displaying his power by military exercises and events for the next 48 hours, including 2,000 young Amaputo who fought a mock battle Then 4,000 of the more experienced older warriors head-ringed men, the ones most feared by Dungana's enemies, who put on a show for the visitors, the veterans. The veterans shouted warnings to the Boers, We are as hard as stones, nothing can hurt us. There was no more obvious sign of wealth for both the Boers and the Zulu than cattle. And so it was that Dingana collected a herd of 2,224. All were red with a white back, known as the Isintulo, or lizards, the most valuable cows, and these were driven in front of Ratif and his companions to count, which they did. On the 8th of November, 1837, all these displays of power and majesty ended, and Dingana got down to business. What do you want here? asked the king suddenly. Thomas Halstead, the Natal boy, who is now a man of twenty-six, translated Retief's words. We are seeking land and have left some of our people in their wagons on the other side of the Drakensberg Mountains to await our return. How can you ask me for land? When a group of you stole cattle that belonged to me from one of my kraals last month, Dingaan snapped. That was not us, said Retief, which was true. It was Sikoniela's Batlokwa who'd raided the Amashlubi, a people who lived in the foothills of the Drakensberg. They acknowledged Dingaan as their king, and now the Zulu regent was accusing the Boers of theft. It should be easy to sort this out. Ratif explained that Sikoniela had bought firearms, and he also rode horses, his men dressed in trousers. They wore hats. They looked like the Boers. Ratif, of course, been informed, and I mentioned this previously, that the Batlokwa were rustling cattle from the Amahlubi. By now, not only the Batlokwa, but the Basutu and the Drosters were doing the same. It so happened that Dingana was fully aware of who had been doing the rustling, but he wanted Ratif to pass a test. The Boer leader should embark on a quest. The Zulu king demanded the Amabunu prove themselves to him. The Batlokwa, it so happened, had been rustling for the last two years. This was not a recent phenomenon. So far, Sikunyela had refused to send back any of the cows and had insulted Dingon, saying, Tell that impubescent boy that if he wants to be circumcised, let him come and I'll circumcise him. The Zulu custom of circumcision had been stopped in Shaka's time, as you know, but the Patlokwa continued with this rite of passage. The Batlokwa lived on the upper reaches of the Kaledin Valley, more than 300 kilometres from where Dingaan lived. Retief knew that Dingaan knew the real criminals were not him, but the Boer leader also realised it was an opportunity to demonstrate beyond doubt the good faith of the Boers and that Dingaan was demanding proof of goodwill beyond mere words or little signed documents. Instead of leaving it at that, the boer leader felt he should show off his power in front of his men, and before departing on the mission, he repeated a warning. He reminded the Zulu king that God was with the trekkers, and that God punished bad kings. It was the second time Dingaan had heard that threat, and this time he and his Ikanlu decided to do something about it. And thus, Dingaan sent a message to a minor chief called Silwebane. Whose homestead lay on the Boer leader's route towards the Tugela River. Kill the Boers when they arrived, was his command. Before they departed, Retief had a meal with Francis Owen at his mission, and the missionary tried to convince the Boer leader not to ride to Sikorniela and advised him to avoid returning to Dingan. He reminded Retief that the Zulu king was famous for never keeping his word. He vacillated, he shifted positions constantly, and no one believed him about anything. Owen suggested instead that the Ratif and the Boers should allow the British to take control of Natal, then they would all be granted land and be shielded by the vast empire. Obviously, that suggestion was battered away by Ratif, who feared the British more than the Zulu. He could fight Dingon, but the Boers had left the Cape precisely because they could not fight English power. Ratif and his men left the Zulu king Zikanda and rowed out towards Port Natal, passing through Selvabana's land, the land of the Kwakangela Ikantla. Dingan had said Selvabana should invite the Boer leader to a party, and while entertaining him, he should be killed. It's one of the oldest ploys in the book, practiced throughout the ages. Lured to a banquet and killed is a kind of B-grade history novel trope. It's so prosaic. But for some reason, Selwebana shunned the order and let Ratif pass. Then. Fearing Dingaan's retribution, he and his people fled south across the Tugela River. Unfortunately, Dingaan had sent spies to monitor Retief, and once Retief had left, an impi caught up with Selwabana's people, and most were killed or drowned in the Tugela as they tried to flee. Some of the poor captured women were dragged back to and Lovu and executed there to satisfy Dingaan's thirst for revenge. Silver Bunny himself and a handful of his people survived and hunkered down somewhere in Durban's vicinity. Back at the port, Retief was totally unaware of his near-death experience and was acting with bravado, boasting of the firm handling of the Zulu king. Look, said the Urbane Boer, "Dingaan had been forced to agree to handing over a large grant of territory in his kingdom. Retief had gone so far as to tell the American missionary on the Tugela by the name of George Champion that Dingana was going to sell him land in exchange for the cattle retrieved from Sikonela. He'd do this, of course, with a commander of 60 men only, said the Boer. Champion was horrified, believing that Retief was deluded and told the Boer leader that he was foolish, he was endangering his men, and that God would hold him responsible for the needless loss of Boer lives that Dingaan was tricking him. Instead, Ratif joked that the Dutch understood the mind of the Zulu better than the English, whereupon Champion reminded him he was actually American, not English. The difference between an Englishman and an American is so small it is negligible, quipped Ratif, making the mistake many have done since. But John Kane and the other settlers in Durban were alarmed. They had heard about Silverbiner's plot. They were far more experienced in Zulu matters and in dealing with the devious king, despite being Englishmen, and kept warning Retief to be on his guard. Retief appeared to be living in his own world to some extent, brushing off the warnings, saying that they were on their way to setting up what he called the Trekkers Niva Holland near the Chigela. His eyes glowed with happiness. So much pain and suffering, so much historic oppression by the accursed English. Soon they would reach Nirvana. Retief told the traders at Durban that exciting times were coming, that the Boers would descend the Drakensberg and take over the whole of Natal. He was trying to be upbeat, but all this did was to scare the traders. Now they'd be overwhelmed by voortrekkers. Retief said the trekkers would seek 6,000 Morgan of land each, a massive 12,702 acres. That scared the traders even more. Yah said Ratif, the Boers would select the best land and because they'd be in the majority, the English settlers would be governed in the Boer manner. For men and a couple of women who prided themselves on their ties to the British Empire, this was bad news. Meanwhile, Retief had sent word on the 11th of November to his folk based around the Drakensberg escarpment about what he called the successful negotiations with Dingaan regarding land, and his letter was followed by wild rejoicing the promised land was theirs. On the 13th of November, and totally against his orders, some of the trekkers began to descend the Drakensberg, and by nightfall were camped along a stream at the bottom. This descent was not without its risks, and the voortrekkers removed their rear wheels from the wagons, replacing these with large tree trunks that acted as brakes on the steep slopes. It was the descent of great skill into a time of great peril. While the men concentrated on the wagons, the women and children walked down alongside, tending to the sick and the elderly. News of Retief's visit to Dingan began to circulate amongst the trekkers, and the slow movement became a flood. News of this development also reached Dingard's ears shortly. Within a few weeks, more than 1,000 wagons had crossed over the Drakensberg, including those of Gerrit Maritz, Piet Ace, and even Hendrik Portgieter. They outspanned amongst the sweet grass of the rolling well-watered countryside around the headwaters of the Tugela River and its tributaries, the Mchezi or the Bushmans River, the msuluzi the Blaukrans called Blauercrans or blue cliffs, because its cliffs are a bluish color. You can imagine how happiness engulfed the Voortrekkers. Two years of toiling through the felt, living in their wagons, attacked by Belly, surviving, and now it possibly had all ended. But these people needed resources. Their cattle and households used up local grazing and firewood rapidly, and the groups began to splinter, as they sought new land along the banks of these rivers, these rivers that were dingans. Unlike other parts of the Cape, shot out of game, there were still many wild animals roaming around, including elephant and rhino. The trekkers began to shoot the hippo and the elant and the elephant and the rhino, and then organized lion hunts, the very symbol of the Isizulu, The lion was being exterminated quickly by the accurate fire from the Boers' Sanus. On the 27th of November, Retief rejoined the trekkers at the foothills of the Dorochensburg, and by then, these 1,000 wagons were stretched out across the verdant landscape, while the trekkers had already begun organising their church council for this new land. Retief was not displeased. How could he be? His people were on the move to their hallowed destination, led by God. Even predikant Erasmus Smith was allowed to baptize the first children born of the Voortrekkers, the first born in the country of Dingaan, as he said, during the first baptism of a Boer child in Natal. The Boers were congratulating themselves for settling on Dingaan's land, and that was the crux of the problem. Only five days before, on the 22nd of December, 1837, Dingan had held his Umkozi first-fruit ceremony at Imgungudlovu, and the excitable Amabuto had assured the king they were ready to fight. All Indunas knew what was coming, and their men were ready. The Boers were now on land they did not own. This was unambiguously part of the Zulu kingdom. This was not the little parcel around Durban occupied by the English traders. This was the most sensitive property in Dingaan's eyes, where his and Shaka's impis had toiled away, seizing and securing these lands from bandits that roamed the high felt through the Infatrani times. The ripple effect was growing as Retief planned his trip to collect Dingaan's cattle from Sikunyela all the way over the Drakensberg into the Caledon Valley. Yes, he was determined to fulfil his part of the deal. Then matters around the headwaters of the Tugela turned ugly. The trekkers began looting the locals' maize and sorghum from the Umizi, the homesteads, where inhabitants fled as the foottrekker wagons rolled into view. Just before Ratif returned to Dingaan in the new year of 1838, some of the trekkers boasted of looting 80 heavy wagon loads of up to fourteen three bushel bags to a wagon, around 80 tons or more of grain, ill-gotten grain. At a meeting on the 5th of December 1837 it was agreed that Ratif lead a small party of Boers and the eight Zulu men who traveled with Ratif all the way from Ngungudlofu over the escarpment to hunt down Sekundiela and reclaim Dingan's cattle. Some annals say that Retief left on Christmas Day, others that he departed on the 28th of December, but we know that he departed with a commander of 50 burghers, joined by Thomas Halstead, the interpreter. Halstead was only going because Dingane had ordered him to. It was important for the youngster to translate what was going on for the two Zulu-Izenduna travelling with Retief, keeping an eye on him, so to speak. One was Mtweni. Ka Sitibele, leading in theku, who was observing the Boers' actions and reporting back to Dingaan, Coming up soon, Sikunyela, the Batlokwa chief, was going to be handcuffed in a dishonourable act, tricked into attending a meeting, the Boers' own version of a prosaic trope. But none of what happened next was going to be to Dingaan's liking. We'll hear about Sikunyela and the final days of Pitwatif next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog. You can contact me there or through Twitter at strokex at deslatham. Until next, Twitchens.